You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. From Media Relations 2006 in New York, Golan and Harris Chairman Al Golan goes on the record online. We live in this uh, transparent society now, and we have to, you, you just can't get away with things that you once got away with, if you wanted to get away with it. You know, I, I, tell, I tell people when they say to me, well, back in the good old days, uh, we had ethics and morality. It's not like today. And I say that's a lot of bunk because they, I think companies and people got away with things in the good old days that they could never get away with today. And welcome to another episode of On the Record Online. This is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. We do in-depth, one-on-one interviews with journalists from the mainstream media, as well as, from time to time, discussions with influential bloggers, podcasters, and newsmakers. And we talk about how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the mainstream media business as we know it. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman, founder and chairman of iPressroom Corporation. We help organizations integrate the web into their marketing communications and PR initiatives. I am also personally and professionally fascinated by how technology is changing the way organizations communicate and the way people consume media and information. Today we have a one-on-one interview with Al Golan. Uh, he is the chairman of Golan Harris, one of the 100 most influential public relations people in the 20th century, according to PR Week. Uh, and it is an executive's guide to, to uh, PR. So if you are curious about how somebody like Al Golan defines public relations, media relations, corporate reputation, thought leadership, um, and what big agencies are billing out their junior staff level um, members for on an hourly basis, uh, this is a good episode for you to listen to. Uh, if you're tuning in for the first time and you want to subscribe to the show, you can get the feed at www.ontherecordpodcast.com. And now we are going to play for you the interview with Al Golan. It runs around 40 minutes, and it comes to you uh, unedited after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Al Golan was named one of the 100 most influential public relations people of the 20th century by PR Week. A veteran of more than 40 years in the public relations industry, he is the Chicago-based founder of Golan Harris International, uh, which has handled the McDonald's account for over 40 years and uh, represents companies such as uh, the Walt Disney Company and Visa USA, amongst countless others. He is a member of the Board of Trustees of the Goodman Theater of Chicago and Roosevelt University, uh, a founding board member of Ronald McDonald House Charities, and a public relations advisor to the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. He was awarded the PRSA Gold Anvil last year. Um, Al, it is an honor to be interviewing you. Thank you, Eric. It's a joy being with you. 
So as I said, we're going to make this episode uh, an executive's guide to public relations. So I'd like to, from 40,000 square feet looking down, um, ask you, just basically, I mean, if, 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 a, if a business executive who was not in marketing or not in PR were to ask you, what is public relations, what would you tell them? Well, it's, it's such a broad term, especially these days. Even when I started, I had a, difficulty, a difficult time explaining to my mother what I did. So it's, uh, but, but today, it's so complex that uh, there, there's got to be some simplistic way to do it. But it's, uh, a lot of people confuse it with advertising, and it's, it's not advertising. We don't pay for anything we do in terms of media exposure or things of that nature. So we have to earn it so to speak, and we, uh, we are the liaison between the media and our clients, and uh, we try to come, come up with creative ideas in order to tell their story. Sometimes it's a news story, it's hard news if a company is, is uh, releasing something, such as their earnings if it's a financial uh, situation. Other times it's a new product announcement, it's all kinds of things, but in, a, in essence, uh, we are the catalyst and the uh, and, and the uh, conduit to uh, uh, to tell those stories. What is the difference between public relations and media relations? Well, there really isn't that much difference because media relations is part of the public relations business. Media relations is just one discipline as part of, as far as the advertising, not the advertising, but as far as the public relations industry is concerned. Media relations, most people in media relations do nothing but communicate to media, to whether it's uh, television people, uh, newspaper people, magazine people, but these days it's more of, uh, uh, of the uh, new media, and that's, that's a big subject, and that's, uh, that's why the business is so complex today. In my day, in the early days, uh, it, was, it was a simpler business because there were only three major television networks, there were major newspapers, there were uh, a limited number of magazines in terms of, of media outlets. Today, it's, it's so diffused that uh, in order to reach people that you want to reach for your clients, you have to utilize all kinds of new media. And uh, I gave a talk uh, recently, and I talked about the idea that this is really, it's the era of the individual, not the masses. You have to, you're almost going one-on-one -on -one with people who have interests. And that's really because of the internet and because of all this new technology we're seeing. So what does a client uh, that goes to a PR firm looking for a basic set, a basic portfolio of public relations services get? Well, they get, a, uh, they get a staff of people who are experts in various areas of the business and instead of just an, an individual. When, you go, when, when they buy an agency, they're buying you know, all that kind of experience. And they're buying outside thinking that should be out of, a little bit out of the box in terms of uh, uh, what they normally get just from their internal staff. So we function as, as that for them. They're, uh, they're outside uh, eyes and ears. So how does it work? Break it down for us, if you would. What are the different practice areas that comprise a basic public relations uh, service? Well, these, these days, uh, the, the real basic thing is to help a client sell their products and services. 
as another wing of their marketing area. And that could be things like you know new products. It, uh, it could be uh, new innovations. Uh, it could be a lot of things. But it's uh, that's just a the basic thing is uh, is the marketing public relations, and that's that's a segment that we certainly deal in uh, a lot today. But in addition to that, there's there are other areas that are so important. If you're a publicly owned company, then there's investor relations. Uh, even if you're not, there's a lot of financial things that you do work with within the company. And then there's employee relations. That's a very uh, critical area. It used to be where that was an entry-level position for a lot of uh, people who would go in our business, writing the company newsletter and all those kinds of things. But today it's much more complicated because you have to really communicate with your employee in order to, uh, in order to be successful. What are the objectives of... Uh, in, an internal communication staff uh, versus an external uh, communication staff. Well, most large companies have an you know have a lar- an internal staff, and we augment that for them as an agency. So we'll provide uh, ideas for them. Sometimes we help write it. Uh, we do all kinds of things in that area, or, or create strategic ideas on how to really keep those employees happy and you want to retain them and motivate them constantly. So that's, uh, that's a big function of the agency. And uh, in fact, we established a uh, division, another company really called Inside Edge, just to address that sort of thing. So that's a, that's a real growth area. And then of course these days there's healthcare public relations, which is a big growth area with the aging of the, of the population and the, you know, and uh, all the uh, the talk about healthcare, it's become extremely important for uh, for an average PR firm to become adept at that sort of um, uh, discipline. So, if I'm a, a new potential new client and I meet with an agency, and I basically I just say I don't really understand PR, but I just say to the agency, I want to get out there. I'm not public. I'm a private company. I have some products. I think they're novel. I think they'd be of interest to a particular audience. Get me out there. What can you do for me? Can you can just give me a, sort of an overview of the tactical, um, the, the tactics that you would deploy for them? Well, it's just so much. Uh, or the uh, options, rather. Yeah, there are a lot of options. And then, first of all, we like to do research before we do anything, whether it's existing research that the company might have or research that we do for them. Because it's very rare these days when we're out pitching a client, if you will, going after new business, that we don't utilize our research department in trying to identify who their, really, who their target audience is, and then how we identify that audience in ways that we can reach them through all the things we do. Now, we, we, you know, we can reach them in so many different ways in terms of, uh, uh, of exposure. It might be uh, things ranging from uh, uh, p- putting a uh, tour together uh, for shopping centers or things like that to get exposure or sponsoring an event to give the name some uh, 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 exposure in terms of, uh, if, they, if one of their markets is uh, male, you know, middle, uh, uh, mid-20s and what have you, it could be racing. Racing is a, has become a big uh, area, whether it's sponsoring NASCAR or something of that nature. And that's a very, the racing audience has proven to be a very loyal audience, for example. And if it's a product that lends itself to that sort of thing, you'll see a lot of that exposure. 
So it's it, it just, it's just uh, it's I'm trying I'm not trying to be hazy about it, but it, it's just it goes so far you know over the line with what you used to do that it just becomes uh, it's a lot more sophisticated today than than it was of getting a story in a magazine or on you know in a wire service story that runs you know across the country in, in newspapers uh, you just have to know how to reach that target audience depending on what kind of company it is so once you uh, get going with a client uh, a client retains an agency and I guess there are certain deliverables set forth that that relationship will be measured against. What is the client's responsibility in that relationship, in, a, in an agency relationship? Well, we like to think that we're partners with a client, that we're not a, just a hired gun that they, that they go to when they need an idea or something that's useful. So we get, try to get to know that company inside and out and that's why we feel that um, we like to work with larger entities because we like our people to be to uh, just get into depth with with the clients and not just work on a laundry list of, of clients. We've we, we've always said we built our agency with a select group of clients rather than just uh, a huge list of uh, of companies. I've always been amazed at certain public relations firms who boast about the fact that they have 1,800 clients or, th or something like that. I don't think that's a great thing to boast about. I'd rather have our people work as partners with our clients and get to know them so well that they really do some meaningful things and not just a hit and miss thing where uh, maybe a small agency who can't afford the, to work for, a, or the average client can't afford to hire them, uh, will, they have to work on lots of clients in order to justify their existence. And then I, I just don't feel that they can get to know those clients as well as they should. That's why I, I feel that uh, we like the, uh, our philosophy of, of working with fewer, fewer clients and but more partnerships. How do you get to know a client if you're working outside? I mean, your offices are you know, all over the country, but they're not at the client's office, or maybe sometimes they are in certain instances. Well, sometimes but, they can be. But how do you... I mean, if, if your job is to communicate externally what's going on inside the organization, how do you keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on inside? Tell us, walk us through the relationship or uh, the, the scenario of a successful relationship between a client and an agency. Well, a successful agency has to have a, you have to have a good client in order to have a good relationship. Because if, 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 if a client has the attitude of, them against us, which some do, because they, re they may resent the agency because they think their bosses brought in this agency to do what they should be doing. Now, that's, that's kind of an old-fashioned attitude, but it, does, it still exists. So it's very, uh, you have to overcome that. You have to really convince the day-to-day -day client you're working with, which is usually not the CEO necessarily, uh, but somebody who is, so they don't become jealous of you they want to, you want to, you want to sh indicate to them that you're going to, you're making them look good. That's that's the whole purpose of it, and that's the only time uh, the, the the relationship works is when the agency convinces them they're a true partner, and they're not looking to to take the credit for certain things. We we have great relationships with clients uh, because when we do have great relationships, 
we give them the credit for it. We don't, you know, try to be out front. We'd rather have them get the credit than, than, than ourselves. If you had to choose in a client relationship, one or the other, what's more important, a healthy client relationship or delivering against the results set forth? Well, they're not separate things because uh, unless you deliver for that client, you're not going to have a relationship. It's actually not going to last that long. I always like to say that when we sell a, uh, something to a client that they should hire us, our troubles begin. Because unless we continue to perform for them, we're not going to keep them as a client. So it's that simple. It's just, it just has to, we have to prove to them that we are worth the price they're paying us month in and month out. Why is it that in government we see a number of appointed officials who aren't necessarily measured against results, but they have strong relationships and so they are able to keep their place? Well, in certain instances, uh, well, that's more of a bureaucracy kind of environment where, you know, that uh, these, these people do uh, have jobs forever sometimes, whether they're qualified or whether they're producing or not, and that's not a great thing. But, uh, and I think even government is changing in that area. I think you have to be performance-oriented, uh, otherwise uh, they can't justify uh, having a staff internally. What, what if uh, the client uh, has perhaps objectives that are somewhat unrealistic and you're unable to shine a light on that, uh, those expectations and, and um, ultimately deflate them and you are forced to make a choice. You're either going to be on the client's side and help them do what they want to do, regardless of the fact that it may not be attainable, or you're going to challenge, I guess, the relationship and say, look, we can't do this. I mean, what, what do you do in that situation? Well, that's a good question because we have lost new business pitches sometimes because we're realistic with the, with the prospect, because we don't want to overpromise. If we overpromise and then can't deliver, you're not going to keep the account anyway. We've landed a couple of major companies when we didn't get the business originally because we didn't overpromise them and they went with the company that promised them the moon. But after about six months or so, they realized they couldn't deliver those promises. Then they called us and, uh, and we've had long-term relationships with those people as a result of it. So it's, it's just, it's very short-sighted to overpromise anybody anything, uh, particularly in our business, because it is so intangible that you cannot, we try to be as realistic as possible. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, you, 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 uh, you, you exceed your expectations. Other times, you, you, you don't, but... Uh, Give me, if you would, your temperature on clients' expectations today. Are they more or less realistic than you've seen over the course of your career? I think clients today are a lot more sophisticated and realistic about things because um, it used to be in the early days of our business, we would have to go out and sell a client on the need for public relations. And then after we did that, why they should hire us versus XYZ company. Today, very few companies don't know the value of public relations and the need for it. 
So it's just a matter of competing for that business with the other companies that we always seem to compete with. So it's, it's uh, I, I think that with all the problems and the exposures of companies, whether it's Enrons and the WorldComs, these companies realize what negative public relations can mean to their companies. So in effect, they want to prepare for that. I, I coined a term years ago for McDonald's called a trust bank, and that's building up deposits of goodwill over the years so that in event of a crisis or a tragedy, you can call upon those things and, and, the, and the public won't judge you for that particular immediate action. So is that what's meant by reputation management? Exactly. Exactly. That sums up reputation management very well in my book because uh, this trust bank idea is the most important thing people are, are finding out today is, is trust. Whether you trust your employer if you're an employee, you trust your politicians, you trust your journalists, and the trust factor is 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 become a real negative thing lately with all the recent uh, surveys that I've seen. So that's companies I think realize that the word trust is so important because trust really can make a, or break a brand. It's not just goodwill. It's this is a very tangible things that uh, that are, that uh, can mean lots of sales or no sales. What is thought leadership and how do you build it from a tactical standpoint? Well, thought, when you say thought leadership, that's been kind of a, a misused term, I think. Well, it's thrown around a lot um, by, I think, people in business that want to be recognized as having uh, an opinion that matters and uh, being called to weigh in on difficult issues and challenges facing their industry sector. Yeah, because I think some people, uh, some some executives, will exp- you know uh, expound on or, uh, on so many subjects that they're not really. It's not germane to their business, but it's something they feel strongly about, whether it's uh, in the environment or other things of that nature, which may not may or may not relate to their business, and I think they go over the line because. Uh, it's, to me, it's when, I, when you see a movie star get up and start talking about subjects uh, because, just because they're a celebrity. They think they can be, you know, be an expert on any, any uh, all subjects. And I think this is a, a danger with a lot of the thought leadership. I think it's fine if you're, you know, if you're in an industry to talk about that industry but, and not get too far afield when, when, you, when it really has no relationship to the business you're in. So you don't think it's a good idea for, I guess, somebody like, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, you don't think it's a good idea when uh, these big-name um, celebrity talent go on shows like Bill Maher's uh, Real Time? No, no, I don't. I think they make a mistake. I think they, they get themselves uh, tied up with subjects sometimes that they're really not that familiar with. They may have an interest in it and a passion for that particular subject. But, but I think they've gone too far with it. And I think that some, some of these movie stars or, or other celebrities or sports figures will get involved in politics because they have, you know, this name recognition and somebody will go out and convince them to run for a particular office or do something. 
Mike Ditka, the former coach of the Chicago Bears, was called upon to run for Senate recently in Illinois. And uh, he was really considering it very seriously. And while he has a following of people who you know, knew him from his football coaching and all that sort of thing, I think it was a very dangerous thing for a political party to throw your eggs in with, a, with somebody like that just because he has name recognition. And now maybe he has some more substance than I've seen, but I haven't seen him with a lot of substance. Well, let's say there is a match. Let's say I'm a CEO of a green technology company and I want to weigh in and be recognized as a thought leader um, and have some impact on legislation affecting my business sector and I came to you for counsel, what are the types of things you might explore with a client like me? If you're a celebrity, you said? I'm sorry. No, let's say I'm a CEO of some sort of a green technology oh, business okay. and, and there's legislation going on and it affects my business sector right. and I think I've got something to say and, and it's, it's interesting. Let's say I'm an interesting guy and I come to you and I say, Al, please, I need to get out there what can I do? I want to be recognized as a thought leader. What, what are the types of things you might do for me? Well, in that case, then I, I think you know, it is germane to the business, and we, we, we should help them with doing it. And I think they, sh they should go out, and they could, we, could get, we could place them on particularly talk shows, a lot of talk shows that uh, would be uh, relevant to their business. Uh, we could get them op-eds in newspapers, major newspapers, Wall Street Journal. Would they write uh, the op-ed, or how we'd would that help work? them write the op-ed? Okay. Sometimes they're good writers. Sometimes we just do an editing job, if you will. Uh huh. So we can advise them how to do it. It's rare that most of these people can write well, but but we'll. Uh, that's our job is to help them put their thoughts together, and we we do train them in well as well as going on television or going on radio, and uh, we help them you know uh, distill their thoughts and and uh, get them into. Uh, significant uh, sound bites, if you will. In the world of uh, blogs, uh, the popular consensus appears to be that you really shouldn't write a blog for a client. This is uh, a channel that the client should use themselves uh, to be more transparent and to get their thoughts and ideas out there. And I wonder if the same holds true for an op-ed. Um, I mean, is there something subversive about ghosting an op-ed for a client? No, it's not subversive if it's really their thoughts. You know, if, you, if you're writing the whole thing for them and just, you know, attributing all that to them without, you know, uh, their input, then, uh, yes, I think that that's really the wrong thing to do. We don't like to do that kind of thing. We advise not to do it because, uh, it, you know, for the, getting exposure for the sake of exposure is, is the wrong thing. It really should be something that's meaningful to that person and captures that person. You know, a lot of people write speeches for, for, for people. And that's, and that's, you know, there are people who do nothing but write speeches. This is a business in itself. And uh, I don't know, when somebody tries to help me if I'm giving a speech, for example, I will take their input, and, but I like to put things, a, things that I feel strongly about and in more of my words because uh, I'd feel very stilted trying to speak uh, give a speech where somebody's written it for me without uh, really capturing who I am. And I think that's the same way with, with clients. You have to really capture who they are. So we talked a little bit about um, blogs and about media relations and public relations and thought leadership and uh, corporate reputation. Um, now let's talk about finding the right agency for the client. 
if I'm, I would imagine, an individual and maybe I'm a personality and I've got something to say but I don't have that much money, I probably couldn't be represented by, by Golan Harris, right? Uh, probably. Uh, sometimes we'll take something on if we think it's a great idea or a great concept and try to, uh, you know, uh, go for futures. Today, though, it's very difficult for us to do that sort of thing. They're better off with a small boutique kind of agency who could really uh, give them the kind of attention they, they'd like to have. And, you know, you can't be all things to everybody. So it's very difficult today for us to take on somebody that's that small. We may miss the boat. I mean, you know, uh, uh, the, the idea of stick with me, buddy, you're going to go places is, is, uh, is something that does happen. And it's happened to me with McDonald's, for example. Uh, I, I made a cold phone call to Ray Kroc uh, 48 years ago. So uh, it can't happen. But, uh, but it's rare that uh, today we would go after certain kinds of clients like that. Because if they don't have a budget, we'll try to tell them either go to a very small one-person shop or two-person shop and work with them. Uh, and, uh, and that can be very effective for them. But, but you know, that it, they might just be too small for us in, in, at this stage of our, our lives. Walk us through, if you would, and not just for Golan Harris, but, I mean, you have... You know, very good perspective over the entire industry. Walk us through retainers. What do you think a client can expect to pay at a boutique, at a midsize, and at a global agency? So these what are days, the see, when we when we started in this business, well, not when we started because it still happens today. Uh, clients do some clients pay retaining fees, and they and and that fee should be based on the number of hours you put in, because that's all we have to sell is our time. So if, if a client says, oh, I only have $100,000 to spend a year, uh, you will try to say, okay, you're going to get X number of hours for that business, for that kind of a budget. And it might be uh, 20% of a junior-level person, 10% uh, of a mid-level person in our office, and maybe 5% of a senior person. Because that's all we, you know, we're, we have to uh, be realistic about, you know, what the time is worth. So most agencies these days have put them have an hourly rate they've established in terms of uh, the the kind of person uh, at the agency. It's, it's you know, law firms have done it for years, accounting firms have done it, and PR firms I think were late in doing that. But today, it's pretty. It's 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 more common than retainer fees. Can you give us a feel for what those rates are? The range of rates by category, uh, boutique, mid-sized, and global agency. Well, a, a, even a, a boutique agency, if you're a principal of an agency, one of the key you know figures, a senior person, you might charge the same amount per hour as we would, being a larger agency. So it's, uh, there may not be that big a difference. The junior level people they put on might be a lot less expensive than our junior level. I was reading a piece the other day on law firms. I don't know whether you saw this thing. But they said the average starting salary of a law firm, of, of a, you know, a junior person in a law firm, is like $125,000 now. And because they're paying them that kind of money, they've got to charge a big fee per hour for that individual. Now, if that hour, and, and that usually those entry-level people work, you know, uh, 
50-hour weeks, and uh, they, they work, you know, 2,000 hours a year or more, or 2,500 hours, 2,500 hours a year. So they, they figured out where they make a lot of money, these law firms, on these entry-level people. They may be charging for that, that junior person uh, $150 an hour. And now we wouldn't charge that much for a junior level, but the law firms seem to do it. And if, so if they're charging them $150 an hour and that person works, you know, 40 hours a week, that's, uh, what is that? That's, uh, they're, they're billing them out at $6,000 a week. Uh, and they, and they work, probably work more than 40 hours a week because they're, they're billing them at more than that hour. So they can make a lot of money on, on a junior level person. They probably make more money on a junior level person in a law firm than they do on anybody. In our situation, uh, we do and we don't because we, 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 uh, uh, because we can't charge that, that, that same amount of money that a law firm charges. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I get a legal bill, I say, what, you know? And uh, you see, well, what did they do for me this month, you know? And uh, I'm sure firms, the entire public relations uh, companies have the same uh, attitude. So you have to, uh, uh, you have to realize who you are and what kind of firm you, wa you want. If it's a firm that specializes in a particular area that you need, for example, you don't mind paying that extra for it. Now, small firms often um, sell against big firms by saying that uh, the big firms, you, you meet with a senior level partner and then they throw junior level staffers against the business and, and you're not really getting the attention of the, of the senior level staffers. Um, is that true? Uh, it can be true in certain situations. Uh, it depends upon you know, who you are in terms of the client. In other words, if you're a large company that has a sizable budget, the average PR firm is going to put senior people against that business because they, they want to protect it and they want to enhance the business and what have you. But if you need, for example, a lot of uh, arms and legs, if you will, to execute some of these programs, then it doesn't make sense to have a, a senior person work on it. You're paying too much of a fee. You're better off having a junior person do the execution of those things. If it's a marketing-oriented uh, program, for example, you're better off having a junior person doing a lot of it if it's a lot of nitty-gritty, uh, detail-oriented things. Like, like what, for example? Well, let's say, say you're putting on an event. Say you're putting on a, uh, a basketball game for a client, uh, uh, which we do for, for McDonald's, all-American game that we do every year. Uh, we have, uh, we have a senior people working on the strategy behind it. And things of that nature, but we have, and maybe mid-level people working on media relations, but we have junior people work on the nitty-gritty things that have to be done, of getting all the uniforms together and getting, you know, because these programs don't exist without our ex executing all the details. So, so that's where the junior-level people come in to do all those detail-oriented things and uh, worry about. Uh, uh, uniforms and worry about schedules and worry about getting people together and waking them up in the morning and you name it. So it's, it's, uh, it, just, it just depends upon the kind of activity you're involved in. Now, Golan Harris has a global presence, yes? Yes. You have offices all over the world. Yeah, and I imagine that just from a business standpoint, from an economic standpoint, in order for 
that to make sense and for that to be profitable, each office has to have enough billings to make it worthwhile. But I would imagine clients come to you in Chicago often and say, hey, we want the global presence, and they hire you or they hire, they buy uh, practitioners out of the Chicago office, but they want the global reach. How are you able to share the billing uh, from a tactical standpoint so that you can actually cover all those expenses that you have uh, as, as an agency to deliver? Well, that's a very common thing these days, particularly with the larger companies who want global work. If, you know, if we're, if we're handling a client that wants uh, uh, reach in all those markets around the world, we can offer them that. And we have to have the local people bill them at their particular rate and do the things they're doing for them locally. You know, for example, if they have a product uh, to be sold in China, they want our, our Shanghai office to, uh, to work on that. They don't want anybody in Chicago or New York working on it because the local people know the market better than we do. And that's one of the things that we bring to the party, that we know that local market. That it's not just, you know, you're not hiring somebody in, in Chicago or New York who's going to send out a press release to uh, Taiwan or Hong Kong and to think you're going to get that in the, you know, in the local media uh, is, is wrong. We, they, they should hire somebody like us because we say our local people know the individuals that you're in the local media and able to, to get uh, results because other than that, uh, they, shouldn't, uh, they shouldn't hire us. If I was a good friend of yours and I was shopping PR and I came to you and I said, Al, tell me the single most important thing that I need to consider when I'm choosing an agency, what would that be? What would the answer be? Well, I think dedication to what they're doing to that, with that client. Uh, getting to know, the, know that account as well as they, they, they should. And being able to anticipate problems and needs because that's very important these days. Because uh, we should be able to identify emerging issues that are gonna affect that company. And if we don't, we're not good, not good enough for them. Because we shouldn't just react to things. We should anticipate and maybe prepare and also uh, uh, make sure that uh, they've been, had all their ducks in a row because we may know certain, if, if for example, obesity is an issue that people are talking about these days. We should be able to identify that issue coming down the pike in England where it hasn't been around. Uh, so in order for them to prepare for that kind of thing, that it's coming. You know, people will say, well, it doesn't affect me here. Or the smoking, a lot of people ducked the smoking issue for a long time. They didn't think that was an issue in a lot of countries in the world. And it isn't as big an issue right now that, that it is in the U.S., but it's coming. It'll be everywhere. It, and it takes courage. I, I have a favorite expression that says, fix it before it breaks. My very unfavorite expression is the cliche of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think we have to have the courage to change things before they need changing. And that's not easy to do, because everybody will say, well, gee, don't rock the boat, don't make waves, you know, all the cliches about, about things like that. But you have to do that. You have to uh, do that in advance, because otherwise, you know, that shoe's going to drop, and uh, you're not going to be ready. And one of the things I detect, I mean, I think I hear in your voice, is I hear a sort of optimism. 
And I, it's very refreshing, particularly coming from somebody, you know, with but your... But old geezer like me. Ex, well, with your experience. I mean, you've probably um, been down the road of uh, the frustrating road of client management for, for many years. And somehow, you know, you're still at, at this age, you're, you're able to maintain a healthy, uh, optimistic perspective. How do you do that? Well, people ask me the question, but I, uh, you've never seen me play golf. I don't want to do that full time. So uh, I have more fun at the office most, most times than I do on a golf course, so, although so, I do that too. But uh, I, I think you have to have, you have to really like it, first of all. That sounds, again, corny and basic and all that. But you, if you don't like what you do, then I tell people to get out of it. You know, find something that you're going to really like. Because if you dread going to that office on Monday morning, then you you know something's wrong. Uh, not every day should be a you know walk in the park, but but you have to really enjoy what you do, and I still do, and that's why I'm still talking to you today and and, and doing what I do and working with clients. I like the best thing I like to do is work with clients. I still get turned on by coming up with a new idea for them or a solution or uh, you know whatever. But so it's uh, okay. So final question. We see everything becomes more transparent as a result of digital technology. You know, we saw these photos come out of this prison in Iraq that were probably taken on a camera phone or little digital camera. Uh, we see bloggers, you know, get wind of things and they're talking about things. We saw with Katrina all sorts of people, you know, going off uh, on, on the exterior. And um, my training, I mean, my background was a sort of command and control style of getting the message out from the center. And now we see the edges informing the center. At least that's what I see. Do, do you see that as well? No question about it. We live in this uh, transparent society now, and we have to, you, you just can't get away with things that you once got away with, if you wanted to get away with it. You know, I, I, tell, I tell people when they say to me, well, back in the good old days, uh, we had ethics and morality. It's not like today. And I say that's a lot of bunk because they, I think companies and people got away with things in the good old days that they could never get away with today. With all the watchdogs there are in government and media and certainly technology, you can't get away with it. If you, you know, so it's, you better damn well be ready to uh, prove that you are a highly moral, ethical company. And I think that's good. That's a great development as far as I'm concerned because uh, I think that... Uh, you know, the old days, the robber barons and all the other people who, who took advantage of things in business can't, couldn't happen today. And uh, even though, you know, uh, their CEO salaries are, to me are, are, you know, completely out of whack with what they should be, but you're seeing a lot more exposure about that now. You read the papers every day and you see, and you, know, you hear it on, on you know, on the, on the air or on the Internet, that the salaries are getting out of line. And, and I think that boards of directors of companies realize that, that, that they can't continue to do that. The disparity is too great. Al, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Not at all. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.